Thank you for participating with us in this live stream. Whether you're Risen Hope Church family or you're a guest, we're so glad that you've joined us this afternoon. With COVID-19 and the need for physical distancing, we switched to virtual services about a month ago, taking a break from our sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew. We looked at Psalm 90, the eternality of God and the mortality of man. And then last Sunday, we, we heard a, a glorious resurrection sermon on Easter Sunday. But as pastors, we wanted to jump back into the Gospel of Matthew. It's hard to imagine that it's been over two years. We started this series in January 2018, and we've covered the first 22 chapters. So we're going to just take this Sunday to hit a couple of the highlights, to summarize some of the key themes and ideas before jumping back into Matthew next Sunday. If you didn't get a chance to watch the game, watching the highlights is the next best thing. If you did watch the game, the big game, watching the highlights helps you to remember the key moments in that exciting game. One of the highlights from the Eagle Super Bowl victory happened at fourth and goal near the end of the first half. The snap happens, but little do the Patriots know that the ball goes right in the hands of the running back, who then pitches it to Trey Burton, who then throws it to quarterback Nick Foles, who has run into the end zone and catches it for a touchdown. It was amazing. This trick play was called the Philly Special or the Philly Philly, and it electrified fans. This is what one sports commentator wrote. A play that the Eagles had never called before, run on fourth down by an undrafted running back, pitching the football to a third-string tight end, throwing to a backup quarterback. It was amazing. If you didn't get a chance to watch it, you need to see it. Maybe look it up on YouTube after this live stream is done. Well, I'm not going to re-preach the first 22 chapters of Matthew, but I'm going to give you a bit of a highlight reel. The title of my sermon is called, The King Comes. The King Comes. And there's four different ways that I'm going to talk about how the king has come. The king comes with the right credentials. The king comes to teach. The king comes with authority. And finally, the king comes to save. So he comes with the right credentials. He comes to teach. He comes with authority. And he comes to save. So number one, the king comes with the right credentials. Before we dive into this point, we need to ask ourselves a bigger question. Why does the king come? When someone comes, it means that he was over there and now he is over here. When it's mealtime at our house, I have to tell my kids to come. Timothy, come. Hudson, come. Usually they're in the basement or maybe they're in the family room reading a book or playing a game or uh, do, hanging out together. But they're over there and they need to come here so we can eat together. So when we say that the king comes, it means that the king was away. The king has been away. Now, why has the king been away? Why does he need to come? Well, ever since Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve was kicked out of the Garden of Eden for their sin, the king hasn't been with us. The king has been away. And the biblical storyline from Genesis 3 onward is this reality, that sin separates. So we heard from the prophetic word this afternoon, sin has created this separation from God, that we've built walls that separate us from God because of our sin. And so when Adam and Eve were expelled, they were exiled out of the Garden of Eden, 
God set up a, a, a guardian cherub with a flaming sword, swinging its sword all around in every direction to block the way back to the garden paradise, back into the presence of God. But with the Gospel of Matthew, that changes in a big way because the king comes to be with us. Matthew opens with this king conceived of a virgin in fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. This is quoted in Matthew 1.23. Jesus is the fulfillment of Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. But who is this Emmanuel? Who is this Emmanuel and what are his credentials? If you know the Old Testament, the Old Testament was full of false prophets, wicked priests, and worthless kings. How do we know that Jesus really is the promised king, the promised Messiah, the real deal? Well, in our digital economy, we have something called multi-factor authentication. In multi-factor authentication, it's not enough to know a password. You have to verify your identity through some other means. Maybe it's through an email account or through your phone or through some kind of security question. And when a bank uses multi-factor authentication, they want you to prove that you are who you are, that you are you and not some hacker or some imposter trying to break into your bank account. Well, Scripture gives us a multi-factor authentication for the king. And this authentication is impossible to fake. We see from Scripture that this king has to come from the family line of Abraham and King David. And so you can check the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 to verify that Jesus does come from the family line of Abraham and King David. The king comes from lowly Bethlehem. Micah 5.2 says this, But you, O Bethlehem Epaphra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming, is, coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This is quoted in Matthew 2.6. But not only does the king come from Bethlehem, the king has to come out of Egypt. Hosea 11.1 1 says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. This is quoted in Matthew 2.15. And Jesus is a perfect fit. He proves to be this, to proves to be the promised king. He passes the multi-factor authentication. He's born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem. And as a baby, he and his family fled to Egypt to escape to safety. And then out of Egypt, he was called out. So we see the king, King Jesus, comes with the right credentials. But it's not enough for us to just know this title that Jesus is king. We need to know who the king is and why he came. Who is this king? Why did he come? Why did he have to come? That brings us to point number two. The king comes to teach. He comes to teach. He comes to teach as a lawgiver greater than Moses. And the Gospel of Matthew is filled with large blocks of teaching We've covered four out of five of these over the last two years. And each of these blocks of teachings are, are sections marked by key transitions. So at the end of each section, you'll see something like this in Matthew. When Jesus finished these sayings, when Jesus finished these parables or these instructions, 
That's Matthew's way of indicating that this block of teaching has now been concluded and he's moving on to a narrative section. So the first big section of teaching is found in chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And this is Jesus teaching kingdom ethics. Kingdom ethics in the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. The Sermon on the Mount has a ton, so obviously I'm not going to go through all of it, but there are two main things we need to take away from the Sermon on the Mount. Number one, it's impossible for us to keep the law on our own. We can't even come close to keeping God's law, to keeping his righteous requirements, what he expects of human beings. We see in the Sermon on the Mount that God doesn't just look at our outward appearance, whether we outwardly conform to the letter of the law. God judges our hearts. He sees our hearts, our motivations, our thoughts. So that means, for example, avoiding murder isn't enough. God says he will judge every angry word, every careless word. Those things will be brought out as evidence of guilt on the day of judgment. That means that avoiding adultery isn't enough. God will judge every lustful glance, every lustful thought. Those things will be brought out as evidence of guilt on the day of judgment. That's why in, in Matthew 5.48, Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So we see that it is impossible to keep the law on our own. We've broken God's laws in thought, word, and deed. We have sinned and fallen short. Jesus wants to make that abundantly clear through the Sermon on the Mount. It's impossible to keep the law. But number two, and this is the good news, in Christ, we're able to. In Christ, we're actually able to keep the law. In Christ, God is your Father in heaven, and you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. You have the power from on high to not only obey Christ, but do what is pleasing to him, glorify him. In Christ, we are saved by grace. As we saw earlier, we can't earn our salvation. It's impossible. We've broken his commandments. We don't measure up to his righteous standards. But this grace, this grace of Christ does motivate us to work. That means if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you can't help but look more and more like Jesus. You can't help but want to obey him, want to honor him, as we sung earlier this afternoon. In fact, the evidence that you and I, that we have been saved by grace, is that we have a changed life, that we want to obey Jesus, we want to honor him, and we have the power to do so because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And so King Jesus says a lot about what it means to live as a kingdom citizen. He gives us kingdom ethics for us as disciples. He speaks to every aspect of our lives. So for example, take a look at money. This is something a lot of us are thinking about right now because of COVID-19. Tens of millions of people have lost their jobs. The stock market has lost 25% of its value almost overnight. This is trillions of dollars of wealth evaporated. And so Jesus in Matthew 6 reminds us as his disciples, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where COVID-19 could wreak havoc on your investment portfolio. He tells us that we can't serve two masters. We either will love the one and hate the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. You have to choose. And so what COVID-19 is doing right now, it's, 
It's exposing for us, for this country, for each of our hearts, who or what we're putting our trust in, whether it's God or someone or something else. But Jesus goes on in Matthew 6, 31 through 34. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So Jesus speaks about money, but he also speaks about marriage and divorce. He speaks to our spirituality, how we give money, how we pray, how we fast. He speaks to all aspects of life. So that's the first section of teaching found in Matthew 5 through 7, kingdom ethics. Our second section of teaching is found in Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus teaches on kingdom mission. Kingdom mission. We're not going to spend a lot of time on kingdom mission here because we're still looking forward to the great commission in Matthew 28. But I will say this. Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So then he calls his disciples to, to pray, to proclaim, and to practice. To pray that the Lord of the harvest would raise up laborers for his harvest field. To proclaim the gospel, the good news of, of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel, which alone is able to save sinners. And of course, to practice, to do what the Lord told us to do. Matthew 10, verses 7 and 8. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. So that's the second section, kingdom mission. The third section of teaching is found in chapter 13, where Jesus teaches kingdom parables. Kingdom parables. Jesus teaches on the nature of the kingdom in the parable of the mustard seed. The mustard seed, what are the smallest seeds? He's teaching us that the kingdom of God on earth starts out as something small, insignificant, maybe even invisible to the naked eye, but it grows, grows up into a mighty tree. Jesus also teaches on the, the response to the kingdom. It's clear that not everyone answers the call to follow Jesus. In fact, many people turn away. We know that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the, the, the spiritual leaders and religious authorities, they outright reject Jesus. The crowds are interested, but they're not interested in following him. But why is that? Why is that? Well, Jesus unpacks that for us in Matthew 13 in these kingdom parables. He teaches us that when the gospel is preached, when the gospel is proclaimed, people respond in different ways. For example, in the parable of the sower, we, f- we see that there's four different kinds of soil representing four different kinds of hearts, four different kinds of responses to the gospel. And out of the four different responses, three of them are different ways people reject King Jesus. Only one of them is a saving response, a saving response that results in fruit. 
The Bible makes it clear that every sinner who rejects Jesus Christ, the offer of grace and mercy found in the Son of God, every sinner who rejects Jesus Christ will be held responsible for their sin. On the day of judgment, we will all be held responsible. But Jesus isn't afraid to pull back the curtain a bit. He isn't afraid to pull back the curtain to show us the underlying, underlying cause of that rejection. And that underlying cause is his divine sovereignty. Divine sovereignty. That is why Jesus spoke in parables. Because to some were given the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to others they were not given. Elsewhere, Jesus says, many are called, but few are chosen. That means God, in his divine sovereignty, chooses some to be saved, but leaves others in a state of sin, misery, and judgment. And you might be thinking, wait, how's that fair? How's that fair that God chooses some to come to faith in Christ and be rescued into everlasting life, but then he leaves others, he passes over others and leaves them in a state of sin and judgment. You ask a great question. How is it fair? Well, it's not. It's not fair. But thank God that God is not fair. If God were fair, we would all get what we deserve, which is eternal separation from God in hell. God isn't fair. In fact, he is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is infinitely gracious and kind to all who come to Christ by faith. But this is a difficult teaching that Jesus gives us in the kingdom parables. The reality that the preaching of the gospel, it saves some, but it hardens others. It hardens others unto judgment. And this was foretold by the prophets and then fulfilled at the time of Jesus. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and be healed. Jesus says that this, this passage in Isaiah was fulfilled because as he preached the gospel, many hearts were hardened, many ears were blocked, many eyes were blinded. And just as Isaiah preached and was rejected, Jesus preached and was rejected. In the doctrine of divine sovereignty, God chooses who's in the kingdom and who's out of it. God decides who will respond by faith and who will reject the message of Christ. So that's the third section of teaching, kingdom parables. The fourth section of teaching is found in chapters 16 through 18, where Jesus teaches on the kingdom of God on earth, the church. The kingdom of God on earth, the church. In Matthew, Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will build my church. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. That means all of us, we're looking for something certain. The U.S. economy, it's shaky. The future looks shaky. Your job situation may look shaky. 
But we need, so we need to know, especially in times like this, that Jesus is building his kingdom on earth, the church, and it will never be shaken. In our church family, we have those who are singles, those who are single parents, those who are widows, those who may not seem to have much by way of an earthly family. And maybe during this time of this pandemic, you feel the isolation particularly acutely You feel loneliness in ways that you hadn't felt before. Maybe you feel particularly discouraged. Well, Jesus wants us to know that the nuclear family, husband and wife, children, that the nuclear family is good, but the church family is infinitely better. The church family is infinitely better. If you belong to Christ, if you are united to him by faith, then you you have been united to a church family which allows you to experience a slice of paradise now, a church family that will last until eternity. If you are in Christ, you're part of a forever family. During this last few weeks, we've had church members, Risen Hope Church members, help a widow fix a washing machine that broke. With our coronavirus emergency fund, we've helped five different families who are going through particular financial difficulties. So as pastors, we thank God that that Risen Hope Church, that we are a community of brothers and sisters who love one another, who bear one another's burdens, who encourage one another, that we're part of this forever family that's infinitely glorious. So here's the question for all of us. Are you committed to what Jesus Christ is building? Maybe you're tuning into this live stream and you, you might consider yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ, but you're not into the church thing. Well, the evidence that you'll be part of the glorified and resurrected church in heaven one day is that you're vitally connected to the church on earth today. If you want to learn more about what it means to commit to a local church body, uh, please contact us. Go to our website. Go to our Contact Us, up, us tab. Let us know you're curious. We'd love to connect with you. In this fourth section of teaching, Jesus also gives us an instruction manual on the church. The instruction manual for the church, it's found in the Bible. It's found in God's word. What, just, what God has revealed to us in his authoritative word. How many of us, when we, when we buy something, maybe you order something from Amazon or some other online retailer, the box comes in, you tear it open, you're, well, you sanitize everything, and then you tear it open, and you're so excited. Maybe it's a new electronic gadget. Maybe it's a, a piece of workout equipment or a new toy for the kids. But, you know, you, you, you tear it open, you set the instruction manual aside, and then you get right to enjoying what you had just purchased. Most of us, we can't be bothered with instruction manuals. We want to just get right to it. Instructions, they're just a waste of time. But how many of us later on regret tossing the instruction manual aside and we need some help with something that we could have just found out really easily if we had just taken just a couple moments, couple minutes to just read the instruction manual. There's a story of someone who contacted the KitchenAid customer service and the customer service rep vows that this actually happened. So this person calls KitchenAid and they ask about the best spin cycle for the washing machine to dry their lettuce, to dry their lettuce. And then they asked the customer service how to get the chlorophyll off the washer drum because it was staining their clothes. 
Lots of problems can be avoided simply by reading the manual. Maybe the person would have realized that this is a washing machine and not a salad spinner. Well, King Jesus has given us his instruction manual for the church. And as a church, as his people, as his disciples, we need to read his manual. We need to know his word. We need to know what Jesus wants of us as a church body. So, for instance, the church must be made up of disciples, those who believe that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, those who have been born again. Lots of problems happen if the church is filled with people who are still dead in their sins and they haven't been made alive in Jesus Christ. The church must maintain its purities through something called restorative church discipline. Lots of problems happen when someone says that they're a follower of Jesus Christ, but their life contradicts their profession. They're living a life that denies their discipleship. The church must be a place of forgiveness, unlimited, infinite forgiveness, the forgiveness that we have received from King Jesus. Lots of problems happen when the church begins to be a place full of bitterness, gossip, and anger. So that's the fourth section of teaching where Jesus instructs us on the kingdom of God on earth. The fifth section of teaching is found in chapters 24 and 25 on the end times, on the return of Christ. We're not there yet, so stay tuned. But this is what we need to remember from these different sections of teaching. Jesus isn't giving us advice. He's not giving us suggestions. The king comes to teach, and his teaching carries ultimate and divine authority. Even the crowds, those who are fans and not followers of Jesus, even the crowds recognize this. In Matthew 7, 28 and 29, we see this. The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So the king comes to teach. If we want to grow as a church, we want to grow in the knowledge of our Savior. We want to grow in conformity to his character, to his will, to his law, in holiness. Then we need to know the teaching of our king. I want to encourage you this week to take time to review the four different sections of, of our king's teaching. Once again, there, there are these sections, chapters 5 through 7, that's kingdom ethics. Chapter 10, kingdom mission. Chapter 13, Kingdom Parables, and chapters 16 through 18, the kingdom of God on earth, the church. So the king comes. The king comes. That's the main theme of Matthew. The king comes with the right credentials. The king comes to teach. And number three, the king comes with authority. He comes with authority. Jesus doesn't just teach with authority. He proves his divine authority. He proves that he is God, that he is creator, that he has authority over every domain in all of creation, in every aspect, over every aspect in this universe. That means he has authority over diseases, over demons, over dark clouds, and over death. Diseases, demons, dark clouds, and death. All of you are familiar with these miracles, so we'll only hit these categories briefly. Jesus has authority over diseases. We see Jesus 
healing those with leprosy, which is an incurable skin disease. We see him heal those who are blind so that they can see. We see Jesus healing a paralytic so he can get up and walk. And that means, of course, Jesus has authority over COVID-19. COVID-19 is under his authority. Jesus is in charge of it. It does his bidding. King Jesus tells COVID-19 what to do. And if you belong to Jesus, then you can rest in his sovereign care. That the one who rules over the universe rules over COVID-19. And this king, he always brings good out of evil for those who love him. So take comfort, take assurance in that reality that Jesus has authority over diseases. Jesus has authority over demons. For instance, in chapter 8, we see Jesus heals two men with demons. These two men, demon-possessed, they're so fierce that no one can pass through that way. And Jesus says, go to those demons. And they have to, they have to leave him. They're cast out with a single word, go. Jesus has authority over dark clouds. Dark clouds. We've seen Jesus rebuke the winds and the waves. He tells these storms to be still. And they have to be still. That means Jesus has authority over hurricanes and tornadoes and storms and floods. He has authority over dark clouds. And finally, we see Jesus has authority over death. Over death. In chapter 9, a daughter of a synagogue ruler has fallen sick and then dies. And Jesus goes with the synagogue ruler. He goes to the funeral. And during that funeral, Jesus raises her from the dead. She gets up. So the king comes. He comes with authority. Authority over diseases, over demons, over dark clouds, and over death. So the king comes. He comes with the right credentials. He comes to teach. He comes with authority. And last point, number four, the king comes to save. He comes to save. The previous three points build up to this one, and this is the most important one. So if you've been asleep during my sermon, now would be the time to wake up. This point encapsulates the whole reason that Jesus came. So that means the king comes with the right credentials. He comes to teach. He comes with authority so that he can save wicked sinners, those who are lost in their sins, those who are destined for eternal wrath and judgment. He comes to save those people. This king is named Jesus. It's Yesu in the Greek. It means Yahweh, the Lord, saves. God saves. And this name sums up his life's mission. Matthew 1.21 She, the Virgin Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus comes. He comes to save his people from their sins and from the coming judgment of God. Now I realize it's not popular these days to talk about the reality of hell and judgment. You'll, you can often be accused of not being loving if you talk about these things. But Jesus was the most loving person who ever walked planet Earth. And he talked more about hell than he talked about heaven. And he talked about hell the eternal fire, the unquenchable fire, the outer darkness, the weeping and gnashing of teeth. He talked about that 
because he loved people and he didn't want people to go there. Most people, though, most people in our day and age don't think they're going to hell because most people think that they're good enough, good enough to make it to heaven. And that's the problem. That's the problem, that word enough. Enough for whom? Enough for whom? Enough compared to a terrorist? Enough compared to a 9-11 hijacker or an evil dictator? Most of us forget that God is the judge. God is the judge, not me, not you, not some human court. We answer to God, not some other human being. And earlier we saw what God's standard is. We saw that in the Sermon on the Mount. We saw that God requires absolute perfection. Be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. That means no one, no one measures up to God's standard. By nature, we are born into a state of sin. We are born enslaved to sin. We are born in a state where we're without hope and without God in this world. We are separated from God because of our sin. And that's why the king came. He came to save. He came to redeem. He came to rescue. But that redemption comes with a cost. You can't redeem something for free. A price has to be paid. The cost has to be paid. The redemption that the king purchases is secured not with money, not with gold or silver, but with his own life. Matthew 20, verse 28. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He gave his life as a ransom for many. The king comes to save, giving his life as a ransom, as a redemption. That means he came to pay the price for sin, the penalty for breaking God's law, the price of sin, which is death. He gave up his life to rescue your life and my life. And this wasn't any ordinary human life. Thousands of human beings, thousands of people were executed on the Roman cross, but they were all stained with the guilt of their own sin. Any other life, any other human life born into a state of sin would have been an unworthy sacrifice. God requires a perfect, sinless sacrifice. That's why Jesus walked 33 33 years on this earth without sin, not even once. He was perfect in thought, word, and deed. He didn't give in to sin, not even for a moment, for those 33 years. And that's something only King Jesus could do. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. To fulfill them. Only King Jesus, perfect God, the God-man, Jesus Christ, only King Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. He obeyed every single righteous requirement that God laid out for his people. That means In Matthew 4, we see him face the devil, face every single temptation that the devil could throw at him, and he beat every single one. That means where Adam failed in the garden, where Israel failed in the wilderness, and then later on in the promised land through their exile, and where we failed by giving into temptation, Jesus succeeded. 
Jesus was made like us in every way, tempted like us, and yet without sin. He lived the life that we could never live. And then he took upon himself all the sins of God's people. This is illustrated powerfully in the baptism of Jesus. John the baptism, the forerunner of Jesus, the one who announced the coming king, he proclaimed a baptism of repentance. That means when people came to John, they confessed their sins. They confessed all the ways that they had broken God's law, the ways that they had failed to love God, failed to love their neighbor, the ways they had given in to lust and anger and spoken words they had never should have spoken. John the Baptist makes it very clear why he came. Matthew 3.11, I baptize you with water for repentance. Repentance. But wait a second, you might be thinking. But Jesus was baptized. But wait a second. But Jesus was sinless. Didn't you just say that Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets? He, he obeyed God. He did everything God wanted to, him to do. He didn't sin even once. So why did the perfect son of God, the perfect God-man, why did he have to go through a baptism of repentance? We know that to repent means to be sorry for sin, to acknowledge your sin, to, to, be, to hate it, to get rid of it. But Jesus had no sin. John recognizes this. Matthew 3, verses 13 through 15. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So in his baptism of repentance, Jesus was repenting, not for his sake, but for our sake. He wasn't repenting for his sin because he had not. He was perfect, but for our sin. Jesus was bearing the sins of the world upon the cross, upon himself, upon his body. He was bearing the sins for our sake. For our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The king comes to save. So the king comes. The king comes with the right credentials. He comes to teach. He comes with authority. And all for the purpose to save, to save us, to save us from our sins, to save us from eternal judgment, to save us for eternal life in heaven, to save us from every area where he has authority, to save us from disease, from demons, from dark clouds, and ultimately from death and from eternal death. So have you responded to the call of Jesus? Have you come to him by faith? I want to conclude with the different ways that Jesus calls us. Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is how he begins his ministry. And nothing I've said in this sermon will make sense unless you have repented of your sins and you're placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It all begins here. And repent means simply to turn away. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from living for yourself turning away from these things so that 
you can have Jesus Christ so that you can belong to Jesus Christ. That, that's what it means to have faith in Christ, that you, you trust in his perfect, sinless sacrifice. You trust in his sacrifice alone to save you. The salvation that Christ offers us, the forgiveness of sins, the eternal life with him in heaven one day, it's a free gift. Nothing we can do can earn it. We can't earn it. We can't buy it. We can't talk our way into it. We simply have to believe and receive. We have to come to Jesus as humble, needy, broken sinners. And you've never done that. You can come to him today. You can come to him today. You can, you can pray something like this. Jesus, I need you. I need you to forgive me, to love me, to accept me. I surrender my life to you. I trust in your sacrifice alone to save me. But Jesus also calls us to take up our cross, whether for the first time or the 1,000th time. He calls us to do this every day. Matthew 10, verses 37 through 39. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus doesn't promise us health and wealth in this life. He doesn't promise us that we'll never get sick or catch any disease. He calls us to deny ourselves, to take up the cross, and follow him. It is only with difficulty that we enter the kingdom of God, that we enter into eternal life. That means... For us to follow Jesus Christ, we need to be willing and ready to suffer, to suffer rejection, persecution, and hardship. We need to remember that as the world rejected Jesus, the world will, re will reject us as well. And Jesus calls us to a life of obedience. He calls us, each one of us, to come and follow him, to follow me. So we need to think about his teaching. Is there any part of his teaching that you or I find difficult to obey. And there probably will be because we're, we're still, we still have indwelling sin. We still struggle. We're still living in these sinful, mortal bodies. And so that's why we need the Holy Spirit. We need the Spirit to bring conviction, to bring light, to bring knowledge, to give us the power to obey Jesus when it's hard, when our sinful flesh doesn't want to obey King Jesus. And yet, King Jesus, being so generous, he gives us his spirit so that we can obey him and follow him. So pray frequently to be filled with the spirit. Live by the spirit. Walk by the spirit. Depend on the Holy Spirit. So as we consider everything that the king has done for us, everything he has done to save us, that, that he laid down his life for us, that he gave us, up himself for us, that he shed his blood for us, that he was forsaken for us, how can we not live a life of repentance? How can we not live a life of taking up our cross to follow him? How can we not live a life of obedience to him? Let's pray. Father, we, we want to see Jesus. We want to know him. We want to follow 
We are so weak, however. We're so sinful. We're so broken. So we pray, God, that you would help us to fix our eyes on our Savior. Help us to set our mind on things above where you, Jesus, are seated at the right hand of God. Help us to set our mind on you, on things above and not things on the earth. For we have died and our life is hidden with you, King Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.